lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Welcome to a special edition of the Steve Dace Show. That would be me, Steve Dace. Todd Erson and Aaron McIntyre are here with me as well. 888-900-3393 is the number if you would like to join us. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email the program. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Parlor at Steve Dace and check out our new YouTube channel. Although, how new is it still? It, it's new until I'm satisfied with the subscription numbers and then we'll just... Say it's our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Steve Day. So if you're tired of hearing me refer to it as our new YouTube channel, subscribe to the damn thing. All right. YouTube.com slash Steve Dace. We have, as I said, a special edition of the program today. A single topic will be addressed, although within that single topic, lots of other topics will be addressed as well. We're going to play a game today called Dacenere, I guess is what we'll call it. Remember the the game when we were kids, Pictionary? Is that still around, by the way? Do you know? I, d- I, d- I remember it, but I do not know. I loved the game show version of it where they'd bring like, you know, B-list TV celebs on and you'd have to like draw the pictures and stuff there like that. There was a game show? Yeah, back in the 80s, I thought there was a game show wow. per- version of, of Pictionary I, as well. Okay? I do not remember. But, you know, our show's grown quite a bit over the years. And there's just certain taglines, expressions, words, phrases that we use on a regular basis that could be new. Some of the nomenclature could be used or new to some of you. And for those of you wondering what nomenclature means, never mind. Um, but it could be, whatever it is, it could be new to at least some of you. So we thought today could be the day that we finally, you know, 10 years into this show, more than that. We finally decide to tell you what the what the show's about. <laughs> right. Well, we like to get off to a running start. Okay. So we thought, you know, now's the now's the time to go in and do the backstory. What what's this whole thing about? Okay. And today we're going to define our terms. We're going to discuss 10 terms, phrases, etc that we use frequently on this program, and we're going to get into why we use them, what their origins are, and how we apply them to the world in which we live today. As we get ready to embark on this journey, gentlemen, do you have any thoughts on the conversation we are about to have? Uh, Parenthetically, the show is titled, All the T-Shirts We Talk About Making But Never Actually Follow Through On. Yes, yes, yeah. That's huh. a good. That's a good way of looking at it. This is not on the list, but uh, I'm not going to be happy until I hear the origin of the term. You bet your sweet bippy. You yeah, say that a lot. I do say that a lot. Where did that come from? Was that was that? Um, who was the when we were kids? The Alice show, Kiss My Grits. Did she say that all the time? What uh, Flo? Flo? Did Flo say that? You bet your sweet you, bippy. Uh, you might be right. Is that that's where that came good, from? That's a good poll. Yeah. Uh, what was that show called? Was it called Alice? Alice? Is that yeah, what it was called? Yeah, the, the diner. Yeah. They were at And diner. they worked at Mel's Diner, right? Mel's Diner, yes. I mean, I, like, I was really little when that show was on. And right now, Aaron is like, what in the sand? What Hill is are happening you guys, right now? Yeah, are you guys talking about? But I, I think that might have come from Flo on Alice, I think, when I was a kid. So That's a strong poll, so I'll accept it. All right. So let's begin. As we define our terms on this special edition of the Steve Day Show here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast, the first term we are going to define 
what do we mean when we say revival or bust? And it is, it's, it's fitting that we start here because it's, it's really the alpha and omega of the show that if we don't see spiritual revival in American culture, American culture is doomed. And it's not a coincidence that we, before we had liberty, we had great awakenings in the mid or the early to mid 18th century. Uh, you saw spirit. Those are, you know, fan, that's a fancy term for spiritual revival. We saw those, we saw great awakenings in American history because it goes back to what Paul writes. I think it's in second Corinthians uh, where this, now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty outside of that spirit. When we as human beings are given freedom, we will use it to indulge ourselves. We will use it in an attempt to indulge ourselves at other people's expense, dominate other people, take their freedom away, right? Is that not the long arc of history on this planet with us at the top of the food chain, right? Absolutely. And so there's a reason why this country, you know, in its 240th uh, set of years, is the longest running experiment in human freedom in the in the over 6000 years of recorded human history that we have because it's hard we we can't do this on our own and whom the sun is set free is free indeed without the freedom that comes in a right relationship with our creator as to paraphrase the great prophets at Foreigner, we want to know what freedom is. We, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. So we will use it to indulge the, the darker sides of our nature. We will use it to impose on our neighbor because we need to understand where do our rights come from and then who are we responsible to to if we abuse those rights or try to take those rights away from others? Well, our rights come from God, not from government. Therefore, to whom are we responsible when we abuse those rights or try to take those God-given rights away from other people? To whom are we responsible? God. That, that adds a little more gravity to the situation than, well, I'm, I'm responsible to you. I'm, a respon I'm responsible to a majority. Well, might makes right. I'll get my own majority. Or I'll just get a bigger gun. I'll get a bigger weapon. That's how we operate. And you can see that in the in the era, in the secular era in which we live as we descend into tribes, identity politics, nationalistic identities and yearnings. We we descend into things that divide us from one another. And then give us the propensity to say, well, since you're in this group, you're good. And since you're not in this group, you're bad. Where the, the idea that our rights come from the one true living God and that we are accountable to him if we abuse those rights or use our rights to abuse others. That instead creates unity within diversity or what they used to say when we were kids, Todd, on Schoolhouse Rock, the melting pot. 
the idea that people from different cultures, backgrounds, etc., would come and then ultimately be unified under one set of values while maintaining their individuality at the exact same time. That tightrope is all but gone in contemporary American society, and that is why we're hanging, in our view on this show, by a very slim thread here. Because it's what stopped us from becoming another failed experiment in human freedom in human history. Is it barricaded us from the worst aspects of our of our of, of our nature? Well, right now we're indulging those worst aspects and incentivizing them, as a matter of fact. And so that's why, unless we see a reset where we come back together again as a people and recognize there is one God, our rights come from him, and therefore governments, really its only responsibility is the protection and preservation of those God-given rights. Unless we come back together under one umbrella, that's, that's what Chesterton meant when he said America was the only country ever founded by a creed. What was that creed? I just gave it to you. There is one God, our rights come from him, and the role of government is the protection and preservation of those God-given rights. That's the creed right there. That's the creed. If we don't come back together again as a majority under that umbrella, we're going to disintegrate. That's why we believe on this show in revival or bust. Gentlemen, your thoughts. This is intimately tied for me to letting the lion out of its cage because I don't remember exactly when it happened. But light bulbs just started going off in my head. How how long had I been arguing uh, for small go notions like small government, things like that, things that we could get all Republicans, conservatives, people of the right under the big tent so we could agree so we wouldn't be too controversial? Uh, and even though I've always been on the side, you know, uh, privately, of course there's a God and he defines everything. I, I, I know I would simply put that on a shelf in certain ways and not argue as aggressively as I could for the only reality that can and should endure. So th that when I realized it truly was revival or bust, that's when my whole approach to reality, truth, argumentation, it was utterly freed up because I didn't keep the superhero on the sidelines any longer. Mm. I think it's there have been a few... Uh, different uh, variants of revival or bust, revival and bust, bust then revival, you know, things like that, uh, to try to maybe put a finer point on what we mean by this. But I think it's best to, to think of revival or bust with the bust not being something that's static, i.e. immoving. Bust is going to keep busting. We're going to keep busting. Keep busting and busting and busting one direction until revival comes. We're going to keep plumbing the depths of human depravity until revival comes. We're going to keep finding out just how far down the rabbit hole of human depravity actually goes until revival comes. So it's not it's not a case of uh, it's not a case of where it's one or the other. We are busting right now. We are busted, busting, and going to continue to bust in the future, and uh, we will uh, until revival comes at a corporate level. And what does bust look like? Well, we're, we're kind of busting right this minute, as Aaron was pointing out. And so I don't know that we want to look at what the end of this road looks like. It, it kind of looks like a lot of pages in history books that we read and studied when we were kids. All right, let's get to the second 
definition we have to define today. This one is vital. Well, these are all vital. But this is one of the newer additions to our lexicon around here. A lot of the things we're going to discuss today on the show, these are things that when you guys joined the program in 2015, you inherited a lot of these notions, right? They were mm -hmm. already mm -hmm. kind of embedded in the, in the DNA of the program. There's a couple on here that are, are newer varieties. We were, we were revival or bust before you guys came to work here. But this is one that has, that has been added uh, to the essential Steve Day show, I guess is what we'll call it. A liberal versus a leftist. Now, how do we define this? Well, to me, I think there's a lot of applications of this we could show you. But I could define it in this, in this phrase. A liberal is somebody who wants government to let you have permission to do this stuff that God says is dumb or immoral. But a leftist is someone who wants to use government to compel you to do those things. That is the difference. A few years ago, I was speaking at a conference in Washington, D.C., and I wish I remember this gentleman's name. I can't remember his name. He's a pastor. And he was a Marine who served in Vietnam, in action in Vietnam. And he said, one of the things that was difficult as a soldier in Vietnam is that our allies and our, and our enemy, they all practiced the same culture, ate the same food, had the, dressed the exact same. And, and so it was very easy for one side to co-opt the other, pretend to be your ally, and then before you know it, you're, you're, you're facing, you know, you're getting shot in the back, right? And he said that in that experience, in an act of war, he learned the difference between an opponent and an enemy. That an opponent just disagrees with you. Maybe even vehemently so, right? But that an enemy wants to end you. And I think that's, a, that's an articulation of the difference between a liberal and a leftist. It's kind of the original ACU, ACLU yes. versus what it is now. Yes. The original ACLU stood for a lot of stuff that we would have opposed. But it also would have never gone into court to say a private cake maker has to use his own business to put on... Um, on, on his own handiwork, a message he doesn't agree with, right? When we were kids, I think it was Ira Magaziners who ran the, the, the ACLU when we were kids. Because he used to be on with William F. Buckley and a lot of these debate shows, the original Crossfire with Pat Buchanan and stuff all the time. And, and he would, I remember thinking, man, he just, this guy believes some crazy stuff. But when I got around to civil liberties, I'd often, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I don't really think you ought to be compelled to do stuff like that. If, you know what I'm saying? Right. You will not find that today. Today's ACLU does march into court to say your business should be taken away from you if you're not, because you're a bigot and bigots don't have rights, right? That's what you're talking about. Yeah. This is the transition that has happened on the American left. And there's a phenomenal book. I've talked about it before. And if, if the whole list of books um, that we did on a special show once on the top 10 books you have to read 
in order to get a voter registration card in America. If that whole list would have been my selections, this book would have made the list. But since I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a selfish lover, everybody got to, on that show, <laughs> got to put in some suggestions. But one book I would highly recommend you read is Radical Son by David Horowitz. And it was written in 1996, and it is one of the best political books I have ever read. And it, it, it just details his own evolution, that he grew up with Marxist parents who were uh, college professors, and they were pro-Soviet. He went to college himself in the 60s. He was involved in the, the underground, the, um, uh, what was it? Uh, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the Weather Underground. That's what he was involved in. He published, he was one of their, uh, the main publishers of Ramparts Magazine, which was sort of their um, uh, revolutionary uh, countercultural uh, publication pamphlet that they passed around to you know, campus radicals around the country. He was a true believer in this stuff. And then when he, when he was working with the Black Panthers in Oakland, California, and a friend of his, who a, a female friend of his, that was also very involved in these leftist causes and very supportive of groups like the Black Panthers, when she was murdered, they basically were like, well, she's white, so we don't care. And that just blew him away because he was like, dude, if given the causes that, that she's for, if that's your opinion, then... Are you serious about any of this? You know, in week one of the 2020 NFL football season, you guys will recall that's when the, the NFL was running all these uh, social justice messages and saw their ratings decline as a result. The next day, Colin Kaepernick, if you remember him, Colin Kaepernick didn't come out and, and congratulate the league for taking a stand. No, he, he came out and said, this is just all propaganda. You don't, really yep. mean, you don't really mean it. You don't really believe it. It's never good enough. It's never good enough. I mean, the NFL risking alienating, depending on some estimates, 10 to 20% of its television audience in order to, pro, pro, in, in order to promote your message and in an election year to its own financial detriment, potentially. That wasn't good enough. Then what is good enough? Nothing. Because it's not about the cause. The struggle in and of itself is the cause. My identity is in the struggle, not in the achievement. Meaning that pushing back on what I believe is, a, is, is history that's been racist from the very beginning. That's the, that's the identity. Not defeating the racism that's in front of me today but introducing an entirely different ecosystem, an entirely different value system, and a, 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 a supplemental view of human history. That is the goal. I'm, this is a Marxist revolution. It's not about ending racism. It's about installing Marxism. And racist is just the new, racism is just a new proletariat. This, this realization hit David when he saw the way the Black Panthers, that he was getting his hands dirty working with on the front lines in Oklahoma, or excuse me, in Oakland, when he saw the way that they treated the murder of his friend, that blew his mind. Now, it, the next day, dude didn't like, you know, go, you know, work for the, you know, the Nixon White House. That's not what happened. This was, but that was a galvanizing moment that set off a 20-year transition in his life. So, so that by the time we get now to the mid to late 1980s now, he's like a full-fledged Reaganite. Because he realized that 
this entire thing was a canard and a lie. It wasn't, it wasn't about pushing back against these societal ills. It was about completely and totally undermining society. That's what it was about. And the ills were the means to the end. And that's why they can't ever be fixed and they can't ever be cured because fixing those societal ills, racism, misogyny, xenophobia, that's not the point of this. Using those as the impetus to transform society is. And so not until we have transformed this thing into a Marxist society, if you want to know when is racism gone, when they get the form of government and the way of life they want, that's when it's gone. Four legs are good, two legs are bad. Until they control the farmer's house and then four legs are good, but two legs are now even better because we're going to move in. That's what this is about. And his book, Radical Son, just vividly portrays this transition. And he calls it, he called it in his book in the 1990s, the new left. The reality is James Woods, the Hollywood actor, who's one of the most popular follows in conservative Twitter, if you, if you knew James Woods' career growing up, when, you know, as we did when he was an Oscar, a perennial Oscar contender in the 80s, his politics are really not that much different, guys. They're really not. He's a little more conservative on immigration and a couple of other issues. But overall, his politics are not that much different than they were in the 80s. You're describing Dennis Miller, too. In yes. Life. Dennis Miller's politics are not that much different. As he's gotten older, he's gotten a little more socially conservative with families and kids, but that's the natural. I'm right. more socially conservative now than I was at 19, aren't you? Sure. I certainly am. Okay? When you start seeing the choices of your, the, the result of your bad choices are visited upon your kids, right? Okay? It's not, that, it's not as much fun anymore. All right? But what changed was, he's like, hey, I, I kind of really believe in this whole uh, freedom thing. In this whole individual autonomy thing. You guys don't. In the end, you guys actually believe in government uh, autonomy and government power. He didn't really move that much right, except not maybe an issue or two. He's largely the same civil libertarian that he was in the 80s. It's just they don't believe in civil liberties anymore. That's the difference. They're leftists now. James Woods is also like, hey, gay marriage, stuff like that. Not my fight. Oh, but wait a minute. You're going to tell a Christian, and I'm not even a Christian, James Woods would say. I'm not even one. But you're going to tell a guy with, with a sincere religious belief that he has to put something on there that contradicts his religion? What's next? We're going to tell the black guy he's got to put a KKK thing on his cake? Right? I mean, he's actually looking at this objectively. They're looking at it subjectively. As in, what gets me the power that I want? That what gets me the final result that I want? Then whatever generates the outcome I want, that's what I believe at the time. That's always what totalitarians believe. And that's what leftists are. That's why your view can't be tolerated unless it is theirs. Do you have any thoughts? Well, it's even somebody like Richard Dawkins yeah. has had some realizations. Yeah. I mean, yes. a liberal, a very... J.K. Rowling, remember yeah, yeah. when she yeah. ran into this with these people on yeah. gender theory and gender, gender dysphoria. These are very much, you know, Epicurean delights, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Science is cool. God is kind of a dumb spaghetti monster in the sky. But the road of hell is paved with good intentions. And to see guys like Richard Dawkins have like yo moments, like um, this isn't what I signed up for. That's remarkable to see. It's happened many times with Bill Maher. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's probably, on, pick the top dozen issues, we probably disagree with him on, on at least eight or nine, I would guess, right? But he's also not insane. Yeah. Okay? And so he understands that if we take this to the extent, Aaron, that you leftists want to take it, hey, he may not like people like you and I, but he likes the money he's making in America. He yep. likes the freedom he enjoys in America. He's like, hey, if we take this to the extent you leftist trolls on social media want to go, you're going to blow up our friggin' gravy train here. Well, that's exactly right. That is what they want to do, is blow up the gravy train here. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's conflicting whether or not to actually have some sort of empathy, sympathy for people like Bill Maher or uh, just being like, hey, uh, strange bedfellows now, because this is the monster that they created actually it really is the monster that they created back in 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 previous decades so that's that's kind of a a different and maybe a different topic for another day but i think a telltale sign just kind of as a knee jerk knee jerk um diagnosis of whether or not somebody is a liberal or leftist will they ent even entertain a dialogue with yes. you yes. about an issue yeah or if they know where you're coming from, will they just shut down and call you a racist, bigot, misogynistic, homophobic bigot? Uh, that's a telltale sign right there yes. about whether or not somebody is a liberal versus a leftist. Mike Huckabee's been on Bill Maher's show several times over the years. Bill Shap Ben Shapiro's been on that show. I've been invited on it a few times. It's just at the time that I was invited, I was with Salem Radio Network, and they would not let me go on it. Okay. Uh, Hogan Gidley, uh, who was the deputy White House communications director, he's been a guest on there several times. That goes to what you're talking about, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, ben Shapiro has been on Joe Rogan's podcast. That's another example. Okay. Is, is Ben Shapiro being invited on um, can't, the Cancel Culture podcast? No. No. And it works both ways. Ben Shapiro has had all kinds, as we have yes. tried it too. Yeah. Well, have if you want to talk with us, we'll talk. Absolutely. Yeah. See, I love these dialogues. We would do these all the time. It's just over the years we've kind of given up on it because the answer was no so often. Because it goes to what I just said a moment ago: the observation from that pastor at the conference he and I were speaking at in Washington D.C. several years ago. Bill Maher is an opponent. He's an opponent, a staunch opponent. He's an atheist, um, thinks we're not, you know, uh, basically certifiably insane, okay? He is a staunch opponent. Let us not overlook that. But he's not your enemy. He's not trying to end you. He honestly believes giving people like us an audience helps his case. That's the same reason why I'm totally fine putting people like him on my show. Because I'm totally comfortable in my own arguments. I'm I'm fine. If I can't, if, if my arguments don't defeat theirs, then I, I might have the wrong argument. You know what I'm saying? Or y'all got the wrong arguer. One one of the two. <laughs> okay, maybe both. All right, but I'm totally fine entertaining other viewpoints. It's just they're not often okay entertaining mine. I mean, what changed from MSNBC could not book me on their network enough. To now they'd never call me in a million years. What changed? Yeah. I, did I change? Did I change all that much? No. No. Not really. Was I pro-open borders in 2011, 12, 13, 14, and 15 when they called me to come on all the time? No. No. Was I pro-abortion in 2011, 12, 13, 14, and 15 when they called me to come on all the time? No. No. Was I pro-gay marriage when they called me in 2011, 12, 13, 14, and 15 to come on all the time? 
Not only, no. they, they, back then, they actually had you on for the reasons to debate they gay won't marriage. have you on. I was yeah. on a panel with Al Sharpton debating gay marriage once, the day of the North Carolina vote, if you can believe that. Okay, So I, I, didn't move, I, I'm, I didn't move left on a whole bunch of issues. I'm pretty much oh, well, as right-wing on these issues as I was all along. What they realized is they weren't winning that yeah. way. Yes. That, that That's is, not the only reason it changed, but it's one of them. They realized yes. they weren't winning. Yeah, that is true. It, do I think you're worthy of dignifying an argument? For example, we wouldn't debate Nazis. Like, we wouldn't invite Nazis to an open forum and debate, are Jews really dogs? Like, we wouldn't do that, right? And that's no, how they no, think we, about we, us now. Yes, that's why I went there. Yes. No, we would be like, that viewpoint cannot even, that is demonic, evil, cannot be given any, any deference at all and just must be crushed killed and destroyed yep. on sight, right? If they can't win without slitting your throat, then they will slit your throat. Yes. That's how they see us. That's how leftists see you and I. That, that, it, that, that what we believe can't be entertained, can't be given the light of day. That, that's where they came up with political correctness. It's like it just dismisses as racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic bigots. They've dehumanized us, and therefore we are no longer, our viewpoints are no longer to be tolerated in the public square. That's, that's the whole point of this. You are beneath contempt to the leftist. They're not an opponent, but an enemy. More of our Day Scenario episode here on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast in a moment. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. Back on a special episode of the Steve Day Show as we take a look at defining our terms. What are some common phrases, words, mantras that we use on this show that are kind of the bedrock of our show nomenclature, I guess we would call it, vernacular? And and where do they come from and why are they so deeply embedded in the DNA of our program? And, and if you want to be a part of our show, it will help you to know these kinds of things. We're going to go through 10 of these today. We've done the first two already. Let's begin with the third. Let's begin this segment with the third term or phrase we need to define here today on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. This is another one of the newer ones. Progressivism is a cult. And because it's a cult, it ends up becoming what, how you describe it often, Todd, when you watch it play out in the real world, you describe it as a cancer, um, a, a, a corrupting agent that metastasizes, right? That, can, that has to be rooted out. If you have a cancerous agent or cell or tumor in your body, can it be permitted just to kind of sit there and, and, and exist? Yeah. No, because it, not- won't, it won't, st- 
the Borg won't stay on deck 16, right? The cancerous cell tumor won't just stay there and say, hey, I got my own little uh, space here on uh, your parasitic host. I'm good. You Enjoy the rest of your the longevity of your life. I'm just going to take off my little percentage here that I need. No, that's not what they're going to do. It's not potentially good if you see it from a certain light. or It's just bad. It's just bad. Yes. I got up one day and had this epiphany. I'm not arguing against a political ideology. Liberalism is a political ideology. And it's had, you know, Todd used the term Epicurean earlier. It's It's been called different things at different times. Okay? But the idea that you should be freed from Judeo-Christian moral um, fundamentals to make decisions, is that new? No. No. No, in fact, that's that's actually the default on this planet, guys. <laughs> All right. That viewpoint is 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 more popular, um, which is why another reason why your history books are so plentiful, because of where that almost always ends up. Okay. That's not new. See Augustine. Lord, make me chaste, but not, not yet. But not yet, yes, indeed. The idea though of of using government to create a mere universe, bizarro version of, of really the, the Judeo-Christian framework, that is new. In, in, in the Judeo-Christian framework, God is all-powerful. In the progressive framework, government is. In the Judeo-Christian framework, the church is the, the chief moral agent of the society meaning that it's primarily responsible for teaching and showing a culture right from wrong. In the progressive one, um, the state does that. When the state says something is good, it is. When the state says something is bad, it's no longer good. It's bad. It has its sacraments. It's had, yes. It has its shibboleths. It has a creation story, its own creation mythos, Darwinism. It has its own atonement structure, like um, carbon credits, um, you could go right on down the line. This is a religion. It, it's not a political ideology. That's why you can't argue against it. It's the same reason why if you went to even the most moderate Muslim country on earth, and by most accounts, that's Yemen. I'm, I'm kidding. That's Jordan. <laughs> okay, that's Jordan. If you went to Amman, Jordan, a city which has a lot of Western trappings, despite its heavily Islamic influence. If if you tried to, there would be individual people there that the Holy Spirit would reach, that you could evangelize if given the chance, right? Sure. But corporately, on a cultural level, without revival, to use that term again in this show, without a mass revival, there is no way that you or a group of people like you could make good enough arguments, no matter how sound they were, no matter how true they were, no matter how much data you had, that they should abandon an Islamic worldview and adopt a biblical one or a Quranic worldview. It's just too embedded in the psyche. That's why there would have to be revival first. I'd have to replace my old religious wiring with a new one. And then when my religious wiring or regeneration, if you want to call it that, has occurred, 
now I'm open to imputation of different moral truth. You know what I'm saying? But I'm not going to accept different moral truth without that because I've already got one. And it's undergirded by this religious structure. This is what you're up against with leftism, with progressivism. Why, you know, Ben Shapiro likes to say facts don't care about your feelings. They like to say feelings don't care about your facts. Feelings are your facts. In fact, yeah. that's a great point, Todd. Yes. Science, it changes for my whims and desires. Chromosomes, what are they? Doesn't matter. Genetics, who knew, right? Isn't that that big on the bumper, man? It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Not that ultimately progressivism is a religion based upon the affirmation of human desire. That's another way of saying codifying sin into law. But that's a fancy stained glass window term, so we'll just go with human desire. I desire for my desires to be validated. Therefore, we're going to retroactively apply, retcon laws, commands, Supreme Court opinions, what have you, that gives me that affirmation. And it doesn't matter if there's no factual or logical, moral, philosophical, or common sense basis for these things. My desires must be affirmed. You cannot argue with that. You have to defeat it. Because it has no intent of arguing with you. Like a cult, it goes by groupthink. It's just in this cult, it's called identity politics. If I'm black, Hispanic, same-sex attracted, single mom, I'm expected to behave in certain ways that serve the group. If I go outside that group, if I'm same-sex attracted like Dave Rubin, I, I might as well be Steve Dace, Bible thumper. I went outside the group thing. That's not permitted. If I'm black like Thomas Sowell, I'm suddenly not really black. A man who actually lived in the actual civil rights yes. movement. You know, he's like not a rookie. Clarence Thomas, who yeah. lived in the segregated South. Exactly. Lived in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. Doesn't matter. You're not. In fact, white Antifa people from the suburbs of Seattle can tell, get to tell Clarence Thomas who is and who isn't really black. They yell it on the street. I'm more black yes, than you. That's exactly right. Yeah. You can't argue with that. It's a cult. That's what it is. And I think, and thus it's an enemy. Yes, as you said. Yeah, it, it it's a rival religion. It's not a political movement. And I think this is where our churches are missing the boat on this in this time period. This is the, and you know we could do a theology Thursday and all these one day. This is the Marcion, Arius, Pelagius. Think of some of the great heretics in the history of Christianity. That's what this is. Look how fast some of our churches raced out to say they were BLM too. Yes, absolutely. Before doing any legwork whatsoever on their Marxist underpinnings, the fact that they seek the destruction of the nuclear family, the fact that they, by the time we got to the end of the summer of 2020, were now literally just nothing other than a riotous mob, right? Yep. Okay. And, and they did no legwork. They just bought right into the spirit of the age. That's what progressivism is. You know, the church is to stand athwart the spirit of the age and proclaim the gospel. In our culture today, progressivism is the manifestation of that spirit of the age. Gentlemen, you have thoughts? So, as Todd likes to say, and I don't want to steal too much of, of Todd's thunder here, but progressivism is, is, is cancer. And um, 
you know, cancer and cults, I, I think we can use those terms inter interchangeably here. Um, I have a phrase that I like to say. Uh, it's just, I, I don't know why I came up with this, but when you're driving a car, everybody breaks eventually. Everybody breaks eventually. It just depends on whether or not you break before you hit the person in front of you or whether you break before you hit the dividing line. You know, what goes up must, it's kind of what goes up must come down. Cults always, always die. They always meet an end. Now, sometimes it's not as dramatic and sticky as the Jonestown disaster. Cancers can't survive by themselves. They always have to have a host mm -hmm. on which to cling. So all cults, all cancers die out eventually. The only question is, how much damage are they going to be allowed to cause? And can the host actually survive after they've run their course? That's what we're talking about here. That's the damage. That's the termitic-like damage that progressivism is causing, has caused, and will continue to cause until it is snuffed out. It has to be defeated. This is a zero-sum game. Again, as you mentioned, I want to underscore that point again. It's not a political philosophy. It's a, revi it's a rival religion that must be snuffed out and must be put to an end. It must be defeated. There is no middle ground. There is no coexisting because they don't want to coexist with you. You can, you can wish to coexist with your enemy as much as possible. If they don't want to coexist with you, Alu Akbar, um, you're not going to be around if you believe that. Uh, so that's uh, that's all I would have to add. To Th that. This is not, by the way, asking America's church to take a stand on whether we should have HMOs, single payer health care. That's not what we're talking about. But notice what they did with the power to consolidate health care policy. They went right after nuns. They went right after places like Liberty University. They went right after private businesses like Hobby Lobby. You must now you must now support the spirit of the age. You must now violate your God and worship ours, okay? Progressivism is just the oldest trick in the book. Did God really say? Kaiser Curious or Christos Curious. The early Christians had to answer that challenge in Rome. Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? And that is what progressivism challenges us with today. Yeah. And that's why with no sense of hyperbole whatsoever, for several years now, we've been talking about civil war and thus... Uh, Sean Connery, the question is, once you realize this, once you accept this, what are you prepared to do? Next up on our list of the 10 terms we need to define. Number four, no one can rise above their own worldview. That's my way of saying, as a man thinketh, so is he. That ultimately, our actions good and bad, are the manifestation of our beliefs. And our worldview is the basis for that belief system. We cannot rise above that belief system. That is what drives our conscience. That's what drives our morality. It's what drives our logic, our decision-making, our relationships, is that worldview. And there's so much red meat on this bone that, what, two years ago you did an entire seven-part series on exactly what this means? Yes. It's that important to understand. That, that's the seven deadly worldviews. What, what are the other worldviews that we're up against in this culture as opposed to the worldview that the culture was founded upon, right? right? And a lot of what—if you want to know how—I I saw somebody joke about this recently on Twitter— 
uh, conservatives in 2030, pedophilia should not be taxpayer funded. Yep. Did you see that yeah. recently? Okay. How did we, how does that happen over and over again? Because a lot of conservatives believe that people are, people's worldview is defined by their choices. And that if they make good choices, that indicates they have good beliefs. It's actually the other way around. Your worldview is what determines your choices, not your choices, your worldview. Your choices stem from the worldview. That's where they come from. What I believe in this moment is what I act on. Unless I'm, unless you have um, a psychic break, and people do. We have mental illness. That happens. I have a wife who's bipolar. Barring that, though, you don't act outside of your own belief system. You act in accordance of it. That's where... That's where the actions come from. And a lot, so uh, uh, there's this notion that we can fight on the application of issues. That, that we can permit um, gender dysphoria, trannyism, provided churches are given a conscience clause. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and there's very few arguments over the years I've ever won against one of my very first radio mentors, Jan Michelson. And I like to brag about this one because it might be the only argument against him I ever won because he brilliant. he's brilliant. But for a long time, he believed the gay marriage argument was really about uh, being able to fi file jointly on taxation, being able to visit loved ones um, you know, in, in medical facilities like any other spouse could. Yeah. And he thought things like civil unions would quell a lot of this debate. And I warned him all along, brother, on this one, on almost everything else, you're right. But on this one, you're dead wrong. That this isn't about any of those things. It's about validation. And they would gladly trade all of those things to get the validation that they desire. And it was years later that he finally came back to me and said, you know what, you're right about that. It's about validation. Because the, the minute they received that validation, what did they do? Did they say, like Andrew Sullivan wanted to do, hey, we won. We can live our lives. Enjoy. Enjoy being Americans. We have equality. Nope. Bake the cake, bigot. Yeah, they, it became punitive to the point that Andrew Sullivan now, he got canceled. The, grand, the Ben Franklin of America's gay rights movement wasn't gay rights enough. Because he's like, dude, I get, to, I get to rest now on a grateful universe like Thanos. <laughs> I won. And then the minions he inspired were like, uh, that's not the win. The win is we punitively punish those who would dare deny the affirmation of our lifestyle. Of our worldview. Worldview is where all the battle is at. And conservatism has vacated this arena for far, far, far too long. And has, has argued about this on the basis of taxation and behavior. While the other side has been promoting a fully systemic, comprehensive, left-wing, leftist worldview. We've been like, well, you know, I can be pro-abort, but anti-tax, I can do right. this, I can do that. All right, and we have just gotten steamrolled because the only thing that defeats a bad systemic worldview is a better systemic worldview. And we have not been either comfortable or willing to offer that to the American people. And that's why we're on the defensive on all of these issues. 
Hour two of our special episode is next here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. We're continuing defining our terms in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. Greetings. Hour two underway here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. Steve Dace here with Totters and Aaron McIntyre and all of you. 888-900-3393 is the number to the Blaze. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address to the show. You can also like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Parlor at Steve Dace and our YouTube channel is youtube.com slash Steve Dace. If you like the show and you haven't done it yet, please leave us a five-star review, no matter which podcast platform you access this program through. Thousands of you have done this for the show already. Thank you very much to all of you. Make sure to keep hitting that subscribe button as well. The more those pile up, the more likely we are to get to continue to do this program for all of you. And we continue a special edition of the Steve Dace Show. We are defining our terms. We're looking at some of the key phrases, fundamental beliefs, values, etc., that drive this program in the way that we do in our own little unique slice of the conservative media ecosphere. Let's recap uh, the four that we've gone through already, and we're going to cover the last six here in hour number two. We talked about uh, defining our terms, the number one thing, revival or bust, why that is the baseline mantra of this program. Uh, next, we talked about the difference between a liberal and a leftist one is an opponent, the other an enemy. Following that, we got into progressivism is not a political ideology. It is a rival religion. It is a cult. And we talked about some of its characteristics along those uh, regards. And then at the end of last hour, we talked about the fact that no one can rise above their own worldview. So gentlemen, as we begin part two of this conversation, any takeaways from part one that you want to address? Well, it's it's like uh, some of these other uh, episodes we've done in the past. My my getting into them again, we talk about them so much. Um, throughout, they're just embedded in what we do on a regular basis. I'm always surprised, though, once we really get into the 101 of it, how refreshing it is, how a great reminder of how important it is that you know, we and others stand on this wall there's nothing because when you say when you we're going to do a list episode in your hand you can you know the list so well it can even feel like you're you just dotting i's and crossing t's it's it's always more invigorating always than i think it's going to be because it, i i mean i progressive is a cult what we do what we do uh it's spiritual to its core we talk. Yes, it's a political show because it, the the what we're up against is yes, spiritual yep. to its but core. It, it, but yeah. it but it always was. And you you know you you come in and you've said this is you know you would, did what I do? Did anybody here? Does it make a difference? It's is it more than clicks, yo? But I, I absolutely when we do things like this, I feel that it is. I would say as well going 
and transitioning into the final uh, six terms today. I would say the, the last one, no one can rise above his worldview, is the reason for the next term that we're going to be that we're going to be tackling. And it's the reason why institutions who even some of us as young as I remember as being having some modicum of let's just say decorum, some modicum of professionalism, some modicum of just middle of the roadness neutrality in our culture are now worldviews is because they're run by people who are progressives and no one as we said before, no one can rise above their own worldview, and it's the reason for the next term we'll be tackling. Let's get to it then. With that as a setup, here it is. Journalism is magical and not at all broken. So, Todd, this is one of your main contributions to the program um, over the years, and this is kind of, I guess, summarizes your view of what has happened to American media, the fourth estate. The founders believed that an informed citizenry was the best defense against government tyranny. Then what happens if the citizenry is not informed by their media? You get more tyranny. So tell us, why is journalism magical and not at all broken? Well, I need one of my roles on the show, I, I uh, in curating content for you, uh, via social media, particularly Twitter. I try to get you a lot other than what I think, uh, and there's obviously what Steve uh, puts out, but what other people are thinking. And uh, the theme of journalism, uh, both from my personal life and what I did at the Des Moines Register for 12 years, but commenting uh, on it, I wanted a way that I could regularly comment on it but have a go-to because it's sometimes, I mean, there's just so much news coming in and I want to make a point and a very strong one, but one that never gets dull and never gets old. And I kept coming back to, it, it was Spinal Tap. And if you've ever seen Spinal Tap where they create the speakers that go up to 11 mm -hmm. and the guy's like, well, why didn't you just make louder speakers and still call it 10? But he, and the Spinal Tap, but Oz goes up to 11. He just could, there was, there was no, conversation to be had he and that i had that conversation so many times with increasing levels of insanity while i was in the newsroom and i haven't been there for six years now and look at how much has changed in the last six years and so i don't remember what it was that finally i just this came as naturally to me as anything and it's it's endured i think it's perfect i think it's absolutely perfect because we we, it's it's it behind it is the reason why when on on fake news or not Steve we don't even talk about the left media anymore mm -hmm. because they are deranged by this. There's no level of criticism that goes on within that newsroom, and this speaks to things we've already talked about on the show. That doesn't just make them look to you like a dog is kind of cocking your head. They're there's no there's no the the Venn diagram. They're not even touching. They're not even touching. So they can go on and continue to behave as they do. And every day somebody does it and posts something that the exact same person tweeted 24 hours ago. And now they're doing the exact opposite. And they're fine with it. What they've done by destroying their profession. And it goes beyond bias. I mean, we have had media bias in this country. I mean, go back to the sinking of the Louisitania. 
Okay. I mean, a lot of people think the greatest movie of all time is essentially a takedown on William Randolph Hearst, who was kind of the granddaddy of modern American, of modern American media, Citizen Kane. That biased media is not new. Go read some of the op-eds and cartoons that were done even early on between the Federalist and Anti-Federalist, between the Democrat Republicans and the Federalist parties. I mean, the idea, we've kind of romanticized the generations at the beginning of the country, similar to how we have romanticized the early church. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, oh man, they just, they nailed it. Yeah, except for that one time, like two of the biggest you know, donors to the other church came in and like sold off some of their goods and then lied about the amount of money they got made and struck, they got struck dead right away. You know what I'm saying? Other yeah. than okay. that. Other than that. Yeah. I mean, the idea that I, I, we, that's why nostalgia, you don't need nostalgia. Just tell the truth. Okay. The truth is its own reward. We don't need to nostalgia things. Okay. I mean, they had whiskey rebellions and boxer rebellions before most Americans had an eye, even knew every, every word that was in that constitution yet. Okay. So, uh, you know, and, and let us not forget, while I certainly don't agree with the 1619 uh, deconstruction of America, we, we, let's not lie to each other, though, either. There were at least there were at least several of those men that day in Philadelphia who voted for the fact that all men were created equal and went home to their slaves, including the guy who wrote the words. OK. OK. So let's not overly nostalgia nostalgia these these early people as if they actually weren't human beings, but like a special breed that weren't sinful or anything of that nature. That's not true. We have done and had to live figure out how to live freely with media bias from really the dawn of this republic. What we're dealing with now, though, is malfeasance. What we're, what we're dealing with now, though, is the truth is 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 not out there. It's unattainable. The amount of work I have to do today. Maybe I should think about this when my contract comes up again. The, the amount of work I have to do on this show is more than ever before. And here's why. I can't even trust the data that I'm being asked to analyze as accurate and, and passes any kind of a smell test. I have to check everything. I can't take anything for granted. I can't take any data point, nothing for granted. In many respects, I've got to, I've got to accumulate the news and then do my actual job, which is to analyze it. My job is not gathering news or breaking news. Every now and then I'll have a source that'll tell me something and I'll share it with you, but it's every now and then. My job is to analyze the news. That's my job. And in as accurate and entertaining a way as I can to draw the largest audience we can reach. That's my job. But I, I, I can't trust a lot of the news that I'm asked to analyze these days is news. So I, I'm now doing news gathering. We saw this during the COVID pandemic and, and the lockdowns. I had to do a lot of that legwork myself. And others like me had to do the exact same thing. That's what's different. What's different is there's almost a pride in not being truthful. And, and, and now we're in a position where we've all retreated to our silos. It's, 
it's now really where the news exists not for information but for confirmation. And it's, it's what feeds my political narrative. That's what's true. And, and, and it's been that way on the left for quite a while. It is increasingly becoming that way on our side. Okay, even if this bad news is objectively true, um, then we just do what aboutism. Yeah, but what about blank, right? Yeah. That's and if we can't ignore it altogether. That's if we can't ignore it altogether, right? And this, in our, in our you know, in, in ancient Israel, the open discussion and sharing of the law is what was required to stop, to stop them from descending into anarchy or the time of the judges. You know, there's the story, one of, one of Israel's great kings was Josiah. And a priest named Hilkiah goes to the temple one day just basically doing chores, just cleaning up things sees this scroll sitting in the corner there. He's making his way through all these pagan religious relics here in the Lord's home, and he sees in the corner this scroll, and he grabs it, blows the dust off it, unrolls it, starts reading it. Sees things like, I have set before you blessing and cursing, life and death. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live in the land. It's By a lot of tr Jewish traditions, it's the book of Deuteronomy. The Bible doesn't say exactly what it was, just that it was the law. But a lot of the, tr the the rabbinic traditions say it was the book of Deuteronomy is what Hilkiah found that day. And Hilkiah, okay? I mean, it literally says this in the Bible. It puts in there, uh, mullet guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, and he runs and he takes this to this very young king named Josiah and says, dude, I think we're in trouble, okay? We've been ignoring this. And Josiah leads a great revival. You can always see the state of the Jewish people by how freely and openly God's word was being shared and discussed amongst the population. Because it was the source of information. It, it was the it was how they interpreted information that they received from all you know from all over the culture. In a similar way, if if God's word is eternal truth, and since the Israelites were a, a direct theocracy, so it was the source of their civic truth as well, right? And in a similar way, the this, this sharing of objective truth and facts is required for us to have, a, our society, not to descend into anarchy. And this, by the way, is why you walked off the set that one day yes. um, on CNN because yes. you, it was clear that the truth was unattainable exactly. and therefore I'm kicking the dust off my sandals yeah. and moving on. I'm, I'm not your footstool. I'm not, a, I'm not, um, um, a, a, you know, a, a symbol. Um, I'm not a brand, a trademark. I'm not a logo. That's not what I am. If we're not going to discuss the truth, then what are we doing here? And right now you've got to go to certain places on the internet before they ban you. And you're like the priest, high priest Helkiah. You're like, Whew. The COVID-19 infectious rate, fatality rate is actually only 0.3%. I mean, you could be doctors. You could be licensed doctors running major healthcare systems in Northern California. Banned. Gone. How dare you bring the objective truth here? That's where we are at right now. And 
It's only natural. I'm not agreeing with it, by the way. It's only natural, though, that our side sees the other side doing this and profiting off of it. And we start asking ourselves, then why are we holding any of our people accountable to any kind of a standard then? They don't ever do it. Why do we do it? So screw you. We're not, you know, we don't care who, you know. Let's just go ahead and, uh, you know, and, and nominate a transsexual Satanist for sheriff like they did in New, New Hampshire that one time. Let's just do that. Okay? There's no standards. Hey, I like his views on civil liberties and guns. Who cares if he's an open Satanist? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's where we are. The truth is unattainable increasingly in our culture. And we're less and less interested in it. It's still out there. We just don't really care to look. Thoughts on this one? Well, and that happens. It's undeniable because the truth boxes you in in a way that you need. You you need those guardrails. I mean, the, the, right from the Garden of Eden, there were some guardrails. It, it, it never was Epicurean, but we've we think that's what Eden is, and there's no way that that ultimately. Uh, doesn't devolve into cultish thinking, and journalism very much has become uh, one of the high priests of that cult. Yep, I. It's the carrier pigeons for it. Yeah, it disseminates its information. Right. It does its leaf drops. Yeah, I'll add very briefly. Now, Todd, this is your phrase, but this is how I interpret it and have interpreted it. I mean, it sounds like the entire phrase is all sarcastic. I interpret it really only the last half is sarcastic and not at all broken. That's the sarcastic part. Because journalism really is magical. It, it really is magical. I, I, and the state of journalism nowadays, I should say, is very magical. What is magic? It is, is the attempt to influence events by uh, conjuring supernatural uh, or uh, uh, mysterious forces. Journalism today... We're just going to create facts out of nothing, Dan Rather. That's the first instance of journalism is magical, not at all broken, that I can remember in my life. The 2004 we're, election. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're just going to create standards, ex nihilo, out of nothing. We're going to create uh, 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 narratives out of nothing. Who does that sound like? Who can only who can create things? Who's the only being in the universe who can actually create God, things can, out of nothing? Yes, God. the state of journalism yeah. really does believe that it is the ultimate source of truth, and truth is whatever they want it to be to fit their narrative to to to, to allow them the pursuit and the acquisition of power. Journalism really is the state of journalism in America nowadays. Really is magical. You nailed it. Let's get to the next one. I can't even top that, so I'm going to let that get the last word. Three-dimensional thinking, all right? So three-dimensional thinking. The first dimension is to know why you believe what you believe, all right? Peter writes in the New Testament to always have apologia or uh, a ready defense for your faith. Do you have reasons for your faith? Can you defend your faith against intellectual, not emotional, but intellectual challenges or emotional challenges that can be defeated intellectually, okay? So that's the first dimension. Do you know why you believe what you believe? This is, this is the foundation for your thinking. Why do you believe what you believe? It's your worldview. Exactly. The second dimension is to know why other people believe what they believe, all right? This is now where we get to engagement. Where are you coming from? What do people who have different views of, of Christianity, if you are from a non-Trinitarian sect, for example, okay, what do you believe? 
do I know that? Um, if you're from a completely outside of the Judeo-Christian religious sphere, what's a Muslim belief? What's a Hindu belief? What's an atheist belief? Um, what does Malthus what's Malthusian ethics? What's a utilitarian belief? Do you know why other people believe what they believe? Why do these people believe the things that they believe? Where do those beliefs come from? Because out of that engagement gets your ability to deconstruct their fallacies. Okay? The third now, now the first dimension's a biblical commandment. And a lot of us won't even get to first base. Second base is where, I'll, uh, that's why there's, when we do the programs where we do like recon missions on other belief systems, they're always so popular because there's just so little of that that is done in our culture today. Even in our churches, so little of it that's done. I mean, imagine doing a mission trip in, in tribal Africa or Aborigine Australia. Would you go to these places and not know what the local tribal chieftains or religions are teaching wouldn't you want to know what's coming out of the the spiritual water table that you're about to go and try to evangelize? Of course you would know. But we know so little about the various belief systems in our own culture that we're up against. But but here's the thing. If you just stop at number two, you can get really self-righteous and haughty. Because ultimately, you know, um, Jesus died for us all. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do we, once we've laid the foundation, now we're on to engagement. I'm, I know some basis of where you're coming from. I can carry a conversation with you about who you are and what you think. The third stage is now where we get to persuasion. I know why other people believe what they believe about what I believe. Yes, I, intellectually, I understand it is biblically true that the reason why we reject Christianity is we don't want to admit we're sinners in need of saving. Is that fundamentally true of the human species in general? Is that fundamentally true? Yeah. Yes. But is but but does every specific rejecter of our belief system understand that and see it that way at the time? Oh no. No. Their conscience may have very good reasons. Somebody abused them with the title priest or pastor. They grew up in a Christian home and their dad was um, a tyrant. They grew up in a Christian home and mom abandoned them. They grew up in a Christian home and their brother molested them. And then when they said something to mom and dad, they said, hey, don't tell anybody because it'll make us look bad in the church and in the neighborhood. Stuff like that. Does that stuff go on? Yeah. And if you don't know that, then you're going to have a really hard time moving on to persuasion. Why? Because you're winning, you're, you're winning arguments, but you're losing the war. You don't know really... You're not you're not treating the other person like they're an actual person, but like an algorithm, a um, a construct. And if I just okay, I, you say this, I come back with this, and then that's how I win the argument. No. We're relationally created beings. We're driven by relationships. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And who is He? Well, in and of Himself, a relationship: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's a relationship in and of Himself. That's the essence of His being. Is relationship. So since we're made in his image, relationship is the essence of ours. It's what we crave more than anything else. It's where we get significance from, love from. That's why lockdowns, by the way, have been so detrimental to our collective psyches. Yes. yes. And so 
you're going to have a very difficult time getting people to care about what you think unless they think you care about them. Jesus did not hide the truth at all and told it often in very blunt terms. But then he demonstrated the ultimate truth by laying down his life in public for everyone else. So where are other people coming from when it comes to where we're coming from? Thoughts on this one, gentlemen? Uh, well, this is a favorite. Uh, I guess my thought is a question, and I think you've answered this before, but where does, is this totally of your own origin? I mean, obviously the backdrop is things you've read, but did, did any other thinker have something that you basically paraphrased on this? Because I almost need to believe that you did because it's, it's so perfect in its quick totality of just summing up how we need to go about this thing called um, uh, having authentic, real, biblically-based yeah. conversation. I, the way that this is laid out, I came up with all on my own. But but the idea for it actually came from um, studying the original Bible answer man, Walter Martin, who used to write um, a book that would get updated on a frequent basis called Kingdom of the Cults. And I was listening to him give a presentation at the end of his life about the latest edition of this book. And he was... He was giving a presentation on what he viewed to be an aberrant sect of Christianity, meaning they were claiming to be Christian, but they were clearly asserting things that were heterodoxical. They were outside of the uh, outside of biblical tradition. And in the middle of the in, in in this presentation, he is destroying this sect, crushing them like no mercy. Um. I mean, he's running him over, backing the rig up and running over so he can run him over again, okay? And most of the audience is loving it, eating up the red meat. And there's one gentleman in the audience, though, he, that rose up in the middle at the end of this conference and arose to challenge him head on because he, he came out of this sect. And Walter Martin demolished him in front of all of these people. They break for lunch. He goes to the men's room, take a leak. And... He notices that uh, a young man comes to use the urinal next to him, a couple stalls down, and it's this young man who then recognizes him. And he's got tears and stuff going down his cheeks. And much of what Walter Martin was saying about the sect that he was raised in, he'd never heard. He went to a lot of, you know, the same camps and stuff as the kids that went to you know, the more biblically-based churches went to. You know what I'm saying? He never heard a lot of these things or a lot of these terms or a lot of these names. This was all new to him. He was he sincerely believed he, you know, that he was converted, maybe even was. But Walter Martin said that even at that advanced stage of his ministry, he learned you can win the argument and lose the war. Because he had forgot that ultimately Jesus didn't die for a creed or a doctrine. Jesus died for people. And so therefore, if you're laying your life down for something, what's more important than anything else? That which you're laying your life down for, right? Mm -hmm. And that he had forgotten that ultimately Jesus laid his life down for this young man. And I've tried to use that because I am driven to win. That's how I'm driven to win. And to do whatever it takes to win and to not stop until we have won. 
well, I think I've got to make sure I understand what is the win. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Is the win impressing you with my intellect? Or is the win winning you? What's the win? Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Aaron? Yeah, no, that uh, that that's a good word as well. And that's something that each of us have to have to uh, reckon with because we like to have the answers and we should have all the answers as you discussed earlier. I mean, the, the, that's a commandment to know why you believe what you believe. Always have a, a ready defense for the hope that w- that's uh, within you. And that's something that we struggle with, obviously, quite a bit is recognizing that while we were, we, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see all the sin in the world, but we don't see our own sin. When we recognize and are hit with the with the totality of our own sin, that will help us have, I think, more, more empathy and more sympathy for others as well. Let's get one more in here before the break. As we define our terms on this show, the excommunications must continue until morale improves. And this was something that you and I just kind of came up with glibly uh, on the show one day. But this essentially just says... Somebody needs their ass beat. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and for good reason. I mean, C.S. Lewis talked about if you're, if you're off in a circle and the vector starts off just a little bit off, if you keep going on that, it gets wider and wider and wider. He said the only way to do it is to go back. And sometimes to go back, man, it's, it's se- time to separate the wheat from the chaff time. And that involves some tough love, to say the least. That every now and then, daddy needs to take his belt off. Every now and then... A foot needs to be broken off in a backside, right? Yeah. Every now and then, discipline must be meted out, right? This is one of your favorites from the Bible. Man, I I, I, I took them out, man. It's I beat The book of Nehemiah. Yes, I beat yes. these men. I pulled out their beards. Yes. They'd taken the temple that we waited how many, how many years to rebuild? 70 years. And I'm gone for 10 minutes. And they've already got the pagans in there doing their thing. Hell no, we're not doing that. Every now and then. Desperate times call for some confrontational measures. Let yes. It preach. Yes. So the excommunications must continue until morale improves. The truth. Straight. No chaser. Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. Back one final time here on a special edition of the Steve Day Show here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Day's here with Aaron McIntyre and Todd Erzin. It's the Dace Dictionary, the Dacenary, defining our terms, whatever you want to call it. A chance to kind of reset what some of the driving observations, mantras, sayings that are fundamental to why we do uh, the show the way that we do. In fact, we, uh, we could call it this. These are our fundamentals, right? I mean, this this is really the the basis for where this show is coming from and and does things the way that it does. For sure. We have three more left. Let's get to number eight. Black Mirror Update. Now, Black Mirror is a phenomenal television show. 
on Netflix. It's originally from the UK. And the, the, the point of Black Mirror is to essentially take the Outer Limits and the Twilight Zone to a, uh, to a different level. N next level, as the kids say today. For example, the very first episode of the show... Broke me. Yes. It, I think it's still the only episode you've ever watched, right? Yeah, because it's perfect. Yes, because it, especially in the times that, that... I didn't need any more. ...went afterwards, yes. Because you knew this thing hit too close to home. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. The very first episode, it was a gentleman said he had kidnapped a girl, right? Correct. All right. And that um, he was going to murder her unless the prime minister of the UK had sex with a pig on live television, right? That's the story. Yeah. And it turns out that he had never kidnapped anybody. And this was all just done. Or did he kidnap no, her no. but let her go? He, he kidnapped he her kidnapped, and let her he, go. He let her go. That's so right. That's the punchline at yeah. the end. Yeah is that he was never going to do any harm. This was just all done to see how far the system could be pushed to absurdity, to um, uh, to this level of the theater of the absurd. And because the populace was so engrossed in this drama, they were all watching it happen at yep. the appointed time. The streets were totally empty, and the kidnapper just dropped her off in empty streets and drove away. Mm-hmm. Because you, you, and it broke you, because you could totally see this happening. I'm not in, it, it was so uncomfortable, but like, there. remember the, I know you hate the movie, but the Leonardo DiCaprio wrestling the bear movie, The Revenant, right? Yes. I liked every scene Tom yes. Hardy was yes. in, and the scenes he was not in, I did not like. But a lot yes. of the point of that movie to me was just to make you viscerally feel the discomfort mm -hmm. of living. But that was still like, it, to me, it was still detached. There was something so real in what would have been absurd to even produce or think about. The mind who made this, I just, it, I, I don't know what their motivations were, but it's just chilling to how they nailed who we are. The psychoses at play in our yes, culture. Yes, on every level. Yeah. Where the most sane guy may have been the, the deranged dude who manipulated this whole thing because he knew exactly who we were. And when we came up to, the, and this is how many years ago, Steve? Uh, I watched that. Uh, it was made like back, I think, in 2015, yeah, 2014. Could, no, I didn't watch it right out of the gate, but I watched this maybe three years. But again, when because I curate a lot of content and get it out, and I, I want people to, under certain themes, get something right away. And I knew instantly we were turning the corner on this, uh, on the Black Mirror. When, when my father died, uh, in early March, and I came uh, back to the show after being gone a week, and it was one week. So I had been on the show for one week, and I'm at the mall. My daughter, it, it's, you know, things are starting to unravel pretty fast, and we're dealing with the, with, pan pandemic. With the pandemic, excuse me. But the, uh, and we're buying a, a homecoming or a prom dress that may or may not be happening, and basketball may or may not be canceled. And I'm sitting there uh, in in the mall, uh, having a beer, and I'm watching the phone, and I'm watching the news, and I see conservatives. Well, I'm in a mall that's full of people, but I see conservatives posting pictures of other malls that are very similar to where I'm at, and they're losing their minds. They're like, everybody's going to die for the love of... And I instantly knew that we were in the Black Mirror. And here we... Uh, I mean, here we... How long? Six months in, seven months in, eight months in. We're... We refuse to learn any lessons. We come more and more uh, 
it's capable no matter how information which information we have steve talked about that in a, another framework with journalism we are as dedicated to our lies as ever before so once again i tag this on many many things be and not because uh, i'm bored uh but because you need to know over and over again that this is happening in real time how prophetic is this show in my opinion not all of its episodes are good some of not are not good but when it's good it's really good my favorite episode of this show is um bryce dallas howard ron howard's daughter is um in the future and it's totally governed by a social credit system yeah on social media and if and if you don't have social media approval you 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 can't live and the whole the economy everything is governed by obtaining these positive reviews on social media and this social credit system and it's 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 just exactly where we're at right now and where we're headed right now. China that, saw that and thought, oh, that's a good idea. So yes, they did it. Yes. I mean, at the time we're making this show, I could, Steve, Scott Atlas got banned. The president's advisor got banned from a major social media platform just for having a medical opinion. I know. I know. Let's go to number nine on the list. All right. Um, equality does not mean sameness. This is the cause of a lot of our um, a, a lot of our gender problems, aside from the dysphoria, but that's a mental illness, okay? Those of us who still recognize the reality of gender, this is a cause of a lot of our issues. And it's it's really the 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 mustard seed lie of feminism. That women can do everything a man can do, and you cannot. And vice versa. And it works both ways. I can't do everything you can do either. We're not made the same. We are equal in worth. When Moses wrote the words, he created them, male and female in his image. He created them in the book of Genesis. Probably sometime around, what, 1700 B.C.? Okay. Yeah, you think everybody else felt I mean, that way at the time? That was a, if you want to use the term in its original context, that was an amazingly progressive position, okay? Amazingly progressive position. The idea that women are given at, at, their, at, the, at the basis for their creation equal worth as men, equal value as men, that you're not just here for my gratification, or to serve me in some way. But that it's expected you will obey God's commands, that you can obey God's commands, that you are individually accountable to God just as the men are. Dude, that was mind-blowing on this planet. In the 21st century, there are still plenty of places on this earth where that notion is mind-blowing. For example, every culture dominated by Islam, for example. But inherent dignity and worth is not the same as capability or calling. Not the same. But if you reject that you're made in the image of God and therefore reject what he says is the, is the basis and foundation of your dignity and worth, 
you have no alternative at that point, but then to compare yourself to other human beings. That's where the enmity kicks in. That's where the covetousness kicks in. The divisiveness kicks in. And men abuse this as well. I am the leader of my home. But does that mean I am the authority or the responsibility? In the, in the biblical framework, the husband is the leader of the home in that he has the lead responsibility for what occurs there. But he is not the ultimate authority. God is. If I go home tonight and say, honey, not sure this broadcasting thing's going to work. We're breaking bad. Should my wife just instantaneously say, well, I have to submit to my husband. Uh, he wants to be a meth dealer now. So I guess that's what we do. Is that what she's supposed to do? No. No. She submits to me as if she's submitting to whom? God. Because the, the original expectation is that I'm doing what? Submitting to God. Right? Yes. So the, the responsibility starts with me, but not the authority. So this is conflated and confusing on both ends of the spectrum and has led to the war of the roses we had with we we have within the sexes today. It has led to women being fed a lie. I see it with my own daughters. I don't know if yours are old enough that you see it with them yet. The idea that you can be all these things excellently simultaneously, you can't. That's way too much pressure to put on people. And the idea that somehow if you decide that family is your number one desire, that means you're, you're letting your gender down. These are all scams. And they all originate from the same lie, that equality equals sameness. Men and women are equal in dignity, worth, and value, but we are not the same in terms of capabilities and calling. Well, and it's it's because a lot of women had had practiced this, believed it, and were starting to realize it wasn't attainable. That I think progressivism was accelerated because they knew they they needed to um, go forward before everybody on their own realized. I think it was Susan uh, uh, Carol Sandberg, was it? With Facebook, she actually wrote a book called You Can't Have It All. Yeah. I did a, and I interviewed a bunch of women when I was at the Des Moines Re, uh, Register, and I did a story about local uh, Des Moinians, who, uh, all women of various ages, and, and what they thought about that. It was a, it turned out to be a great story, had really interesting conversations, but those are not conversations that the cult can allow. And, and I think we, that's why we're in a place right now we couldn't have even dreamed of uh, a decade ago, uh, because re in real time, uh, there were people who had honestly lived it out, realized it wasn't attainable. And if the conversations continued on a grown-up level, sanity may ensue. That's not allowed. Aaron, you have any thoughts? Yeah. Um, with this one, as with as with many others, there is there is an element of... Uh, the serpent in the garden, just doing a little twist to what God said. And then that little twist is responsible for uh, going up in flames, things going up in flames, equality and sameness on its face without really, without really looking into it, or equality, I should say, just on its face without really looking into it, uh, without really thinking it through. It does, it 
it can mean the same as as sameness, but that is not true. It is just a little twist, a little twist of the words and definitions, and we end up with where we are now, with all of the all of the destruction that has been wrought by uh, feminism and things of that nature, especially with, as you noted before, with with uh, gender. Uh, that's that's where we're at because because of just a a misunderstanding, a willful or otherwise of what equality actually means. Here's our final term to define on the show today. Solutions trump values. One of the main reasons we lose arguments to leftists when we're permitted to engage them in this culture is, let's look at the gun issue, for example. We will begin by asserting a value. I believe in the Second Amendment that I have the God-given right to defend myself and the constitutional right to keep and bear arms with that in mind. That's a value. We wholeheartedly endorse and agree with it on this show. But the other side will come with, come back with, how'd those guns ever get in the hands of a guy that was just going to go shoot those poor kids up at, uh, at, at Sandy Hook in the first place? We got to do something about that. And that just, that's, a, that's a tragedy beyond comprehension, and we have to do whatever we can so that never, ever happens ever again. In the culture we live in today, we have to make, we can't make solution, we can't make, I'm sorry, we can't make value-based arguments as the basis for our arguments anymore because the culture no longer accepts our values as the default setting for the culture. That default setting is very much up in the air at this point in time. And so we've got to win the argument all over again. And one of the ways we win the argument is by instead of asserting the value of why God gives us the right to self-defense and why the Constitution enshrines that in the Second Amendment, we need to give a solution, example, as to why those values were recognized in the first place. Well, why do you think a young woman on a college campus that you think is, you know, a rape hunting ground, why do you think she can't defend herself? Why do you hate women? Why do you hate old people? So my grandmama, my grandpapa, they live, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and there's a home invasion and the cops are 20 minutes away. So you don't think they ought to be able to defend themselves with a gun? Why do you hate old people like that? Why do you hate, why do you hate um, young women uh, that you want them to abuse their bodies and, and, and murder their children and have them emotionally scarred potentially for the rest of their life with that decision? See, what's, this, what's the solution-based argument? When you're dealing with a culture that's uncertain about its values, it's going to choose the values that it thinks has the best solution to its problems. This is kind of our populism. Yes. And it's what Tucker Carlson has been doing a lot lately, too, why he's been attractive. Yes. Yeah, if we can't apply this so that it's meaningful Correct. to me, it will it will make my life better, then your values are sentiment sentiments. They're blogs. Um, they're ineffective. They don't change the way I live for the better. So we can make values-based arguments in the 80s and then well into the 90s, when a lot, when you still had Democrats like Bill Clinton signing defensive marriage acts into law, and and you can't be on welfare for more than two years into law, would any Democrat in America, outside of a state like Louisiana, hmm. sign any of those kinds of things into law these days? Hmm. How many, how many Republicans would sign yeah. those kinds of things into laws these That's days? That's a wide open question. You, you know what I'm saying? And so that tells you that the our values are up for grabs. We are not the default setting anymore. We have to go back and rewin these arguments all over again. 
And in order to rewin these arguments, we have to show that they are the winning solution to the dilemma and the problems I face today and right now. They work. That they work. That's right. Great stuff, guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed a special edition of the show. Are we going to add anything here at the end, Aaron? No, it was just fun. It yeah. was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was. We will be back to regular order next time around here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Until then, John 317.